This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. The Public Employees Insurance Agency has been struggling for years. A lot of that has to do with inaction to solve those problems. Well, we got to this place over the last 12 years with uh, no premium increases whatsoever. And uh, this has just allowed this deficit to build up. That story and more coming up this West Virginia Morning. Support for West Virginia Morning is proudly provided by Luke Frazier. Governor Jim Justice signed the much-debated tax cut bill with lawmakers on stage at the Culture Center on Tuesday afternoon. Emily Rice has more. The signing of the bill into law comes just days after the House approved House Bill 2526, agreeing with the Senate's proposals to reduce the personal income tax. Senate President Craig Blair, a Republican from Berkeley County, said teamwork among senators, delegates, and the governor's office made the tax cut possible. This is momentous of a $4.8 billion budget, and you're giving $760 million of it back to, to, to the people. And it'll, it, it'll work. And we did it across the board. Personal income tax rates will be cut by 21.25% across all six tax brackets, retroactive to January 1st, 2023. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Recently, former President Jimmy Carter's family announced he was entering hospice care. But what is it? For his series, Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents, News Director Eric Douglas spoke with Catherine Calloway from Hospice Care of West Virginia to find out more. This is a conversation many people don't want to have with their loved ones, but it's an important one. Give me the elevator version of what hospice care is and what it's not. Hospice Care West Virginia, our organization, We are the largest hospice organization in West Virginia. We cover 16 counties. We are inpatient and outpatient. We have a palliative component, and we have our hospice component. Palliative is for any stage of a disease process. It is not end of life. It is considered something that is another facet of someone's care so that they can improve their quality of life during their disease progression. Um, Hospice is end-of-life care. And when we think of hospice, we think of someone who qualifies for hospice or would be referred to hospice by their physician. Um, If they have, if you were to take away all medical intervention, if you were to take away medical intervention, you would think to yourself, I expect that person would pass within six months. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't do intervention or they don't continue to do medications. We have patients who come in and out of the hospice system. They may come in for a period of time. They may graduate from hospice. Mm. They may go back into hospice at a period of time. Um, One of the misconceptions about hospice is that you go into hospice to die, which is not the case. Or you go into hospice and you no longer receive care. Um, which is also not the case. What what does it take to qualify to be to get into the system, mm-hmm. into the hospice care system? There is also a misconception that you have to have a referral from a physician. You do not. 
a physician should, you know, if somebody has a primary care physician, you would hope that that person is part of that dialogue process. But anyone who wants to refer a, a patient, a loved one, or themselves to hospice can call hospice and request for a referral. So that means that they call, they say they're interested in hospice, and we have a hospice nurse do an assessment. Um, again, it goes back to um, more specific qualifying criteria, again, that that person has a life expectancy of six months without interventional care. What do you do for the families? What's the emotional support? Because this is a tough conversation. This is a tough situation to be in. Most people don't, as we discussed earlier, don't willingly want to face it. Mm -hmm. Well, hospice is there as much for the families as it is for the patient. Sometimes it's there more for the family than it is for the patient. And often the patient is ready. They are ready to... um, they are ready to take that next step. They don't want to go into the hospital again. Um, they are ready to be comfortable. They want their end of days to look like something different than maybe it had for the previous six months. And so that's where hospice is there really for the families to help bring that dialogue so that the patient and the family are on the same page. It's almost like having a mediator, again, to facilitate that dialogue. And often um, our palliative, our director of palliative services, Miranda Broyle, she's incredible at at this conversation, which is sitting down with the family and saying, okay, what did life look like a year ago? What did life look like six months ago? What does your day-to-day look like now within the past few weeks? And what are your goals for for this loved one at this point in time? Uh, is there anything else that we haven't discussed that, that you want to talk about? I think the takeaway is that hospice is much more expansive than what an individual's per- the perception is um, from hospice many years ago. The services that we have to offer offer are multifaceted. It does not mean a withdrawal of care. Patients stay on their medications. We do active intervention. Anything that is meant to improve the quality of life of that individual is part of what we do. That was Catherine Calloway, Director of Clinical Development for Hospice Care of West Virginia, speaking with Eric Douglas about hospice care and what it means. To read a longer version of this interview or to see other stories in the series, visit our website at wvpublic.org. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 751. Partly cloudy and breezy today, high temperatures in the 40s and 50s. Partly cloudy tonight with lows in the 20s. Mostly sunny on Thursday with highs in the 40s and 50s. Chance of rain or snow tomorrow night and Friday with lows in the 20s and 30s. Highs on Friday in the 30s and 40s. Support for the weather forecast is provided by the attorneys at Taurus Save a Law, representing firefighters, police officers, and West Virginia families. Information at TaurusSaveAlaw.com.
the Public Employees Insurance Agency needed attention. Senate Bill 268 has passed through both chambers and on its way to the governor's desk. But the governor has said many times he would not raise premiums on his watch. Randy Yowie spoke with Delegate Matthew Rohrbach and House Minority Leader Doug Scaff to discuss changes to PEIA. Delegate Rohrbach, let's start with you. Since you presented the bill to the House on Saturday and extended into a good three-hour debate, you spoke of a ballooning PEIA deficit. If I remember right, it was $154 million right now, maybe $422 million by 2027. You said without checks and balances, it would lead to collapse. What I wonder is, how did we get to this point in the first place? Well, we got to this place over the last 12 years with uh, no premium increases whatsoever. And uh, this has just allowed this deficit to build up. And we, we have to deal with it now because by 2027, $424 million is just not manageable in our state budget. And I remind you, that was over and above what we were currently putting in PEIA. So that's $424 million additional dollars. Delegate Scaff, I, I know that the Democratic minority spoke up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about what alternatives were. And plus, I looked up today that in 2018, on March 13th, there was a PEIA task force that was formed. And they never met after 2018. Mm-hmm. Was, is that a little problematic? I think, you know, PIA is going to be an ongoing issue as health care costs continue to rise. I think it needs to be. And I commend uh, Delegate Rohrbach here. I know they worked countless hours throughout the summer and through the past couple of years on getting a product that we could come together to, to address this crisis because it really was and it was continued. We just can't happen what happened in Wheeling when the hospital decided to stop taking patients. I mean, that's when you know you've hit rock bottom. And I think we were, we were at a place where other hospitals were getting ready to make that decision if something wasn't to be done. So I commend them. And yes, we have our differences on how they got to the end product and some things that could have maybe been done differently and we offered some of those during the floor you know and now with the 12 votes yeah we we just spoke our piece and went on our way i think there was 24 votes if i'm not mistaken 24 votes yeah well uh, let's jump ahead to the hospitals because i was going to talk about premiums but you talked about hospitals Uh, at one point in time they were being reimbursed 50% on PEIA and Medicaid rates, Medicare rates, I mean. And uh, now it's 110%. I don't quite understand, though, how somebody would accept a 50% payment. You know, if somebody owed me money and they said, well, here's 50% worth, I wouldn't like it. I don't quite understand how that worked. Well, the state got lucky for a long time that people took it, <laughs> frankly. Uh, but I think one of the big problems that prompted the decision we had to do something now is the access problem was getting acute. Hmm. Hospitals were starting to drop. As my friend Delegate Scaff said, I don't think Wheeling was going to be the first hospital to drop out of PEIA. Doctors left and right were dropping out. Uh, one major pharmacy chain had stopped taking PEIA prescriptions. You had a staff member, right? And I had a staff member here in the house that their family doctor dropped them because they had PEIA. So we just couldn't keep going any longer because the reimbursement levels had gotten so low. Now, I might add that when we studied it, it, intently this, this issue, uh, we looked at the five surrounding states. They all pay to their providers somewhere between 150 and 180 percent of Medicare. So the provider community is still giving the state a tremendous discount 
But we simply, 50 cents on the Medicare dollar just was not going to continue to work. What we've got also is an 80-20 split. The state pays 80% of that hospital bill or that doctor bill, and the insured pays 20%. Is that typical of insurance plans? I think it's typical for most. I mean, they, it ranges in percentage, you know, but, you know, you got to remember, we have a lot of employees in the state, in the public employee system, who they take less to do perform those jobs, and so we provide them this benefit, and I think the 80-20 is something we've always strived for. We thought that was a fair benefit to help compensate for maybe some of the lower salaries that they get. Because those numbers were going askew, right? Oh, the 80-20, we were currently, we're at about 83-17, yeah. and we were rapidly heading to 90-10, or 89-11 by 2027. So, and that is one of the major elements of the bill is to rebase back to 80-20 and put fiduciary responsibility on the finance board to keep us at 80-20 going forward. Uh, the, the, the spouse aspect uh, caused a lot of hue and cry. If your spouse uh, is able to be insured by a, their own employer, uh, then they wouldn't be eligible unless they paid $147 a month, unless that other spouse paid, mm -hmm. into the plan. Um, so what does that save? Well, we looked at several aspects to do it. So the quick answer is the estimate is $21 million. But we looked at how other states, and we looked at private insurance plans, how do they do it? So particularly the other state plans, did not have a straight across the board 80-20. So for the employee, they had an 80-20 plan. By the time you got to the family plan, it was typically about 60-40 on the premium sharing model. Now, so in essence, everybody paid more to have the family plan. What we elected to do was to keep it at 80-20 for everyone, and then for those that would need that additional coverage it's $147 a month. The other option was to lower to 60-40, and then everybody was going to pay more, and we didn't really think that was fair. That was Delegate Matthew Rohrbach and Minority Leader Doug Gaff speaking with Randy Yowie about PEIA for the legislature today. To hear the rest of that interview, visit our website at wvpublic.org. Tune in this week through Friday at 6 p.m. on radio and television to get updates on the legislative session. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from West Virginia University, Concord University, and Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Bill Lynch, Caroline McGregor, Curtis Tate, Chris Schultz, Emily Rice, Eric Douglas, Liz McCormick, Randy Yowie, and Shepard Snyder. Eric Douglas is our news director, and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning.